Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. Welcome to the Next Reel's Movies We Like, part of the True Story FM Entertainment Network. I'm Andy Nelson. That over there is Pete Wright. Hi, Andy. On today's episode, we have invited screenwriter and graphic artist Todd Alcott to talk about Bambi, a movie he likes. Hey, hey Todd. Hey. Uh, we are thrilled to have you uh, joining us here to have this conversation about a wonderful, wonderful film, uh, something that I've grown up with. I, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, considering the way that Disney releases movies, it's something we've all grown up with over the years. Bambi from 1942. Before we jump into the movie, though, let's talk a little bit about you and the work that you've done. So you're a screenwriter. I was the I was the the, the first writer on Ants, uh, and uh, a, a lot of my stuff ended up in the movie. Uh, so I always I, nice. I got credit. There's other movies that I worked on that I don't have a credit on, and there's other movies I have a credit on that I that my stuff isn't in there anymore. But uh, uh, that's, <laughs> that's the way the screenwriting business goes. Uh, but uh, I can genuinely say, yes, I was there for Ants, and I wrote that script and. And uh, the the Whites brothers came on, and uh, they did a great job, and the movie came out great, and then it made money, and uh, everyone was happy. Well, that's that's really the biggest question that I had, and you already answered it. Are you happy with the movie as it ended up with, you know, whatever combination of your stuff and their stuff left? Oh, it was very strange. Uh, I went to see it opening day, 
and uh, it was a matinee and it was full of kids. And it was very strange because um, I had at the same time that I was working on ants, I was also working on an adaptation of the Merchant of Venice. That sounds weird, I know. Uh, but I was a playwright <laughs> at the same time. And uh, the Merchant of Venice, I found, was about uh, a man, this merchant, Antonio, who uh, who is uh, he's not content with Venetian society. And the play, in a way, is about, well, how does he respond to this corrupt society? Then that that project was done and I was immediately working on ants. And then two and a half years later, the movie comes out and I'm watching it in the theater. And I'm like. Oh, this is another, it's another story about this individual's response to a corrupt society and, and how, <laughs> and, and how his, his initial response is to, well, let's get out of here. Let's, I'm going to, I'm going to marry the princess and I'm going to move out of here and find some other place to live. And then he decides, oh, well, no, the society is still corrupt and I still belong to it. I have to go back and fix it. And that's the difference between, uh, between ants and uh, the merchant of Venice and in the merchant of Venice. They say the hell with Venice. We're going to go live here in uh, in uh, I forget I forget the name of the place they go live in, but uh, they they abandon the place anyway. Uh, but it was very it was very strange because the movie Ants it's about genocide, and I was watching the the third act of the piece, and I'm like, huh, it's a kids movie about genocide. <laughs> uh, weird that they let me do that. Yeah, right. <laughs> That, that Jeffrey Katzenberg always looking to do something yeah. to uh, stand out from Disney, right? Weird, weirdly progressive, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. There's a there's a line I can't remember if I wrote it or not, but there's a line towards the end, and it's like you know, it's just sort of a boy meets girl, boy falls in love, boy and girl change the uh, underlying social order of the society. Everyone happily <laughs> ever after. Anyway. So, but yeah, that was a real experience. Uh, it was uh, it was very strange how I got the job because uh, I had I had never written an animated movie before, and uh, and uh, Nina Jacobson, who was the uh, executive in charge of the project at DreamWorks, uh, had read one of my scripts and she called me up and uh, and asked me if I wanted to write this animated movie about talking ants. And I remember I was living in New York and I was sitting there on my computer and I was thinking, ah, geez, oh man. Oh no, I've never, I've never written an animated movie before. I don't know if I'm really interested in animation. I suppose if I was going to write an animated movie, it might as well be for the guy who made the Lion King. What am I thinking? Yes, of course, I will write, <laughs> I will write your talking in movie. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it was a huge opportunity presented to me. Uh, uh, and it was the easiest job i've ever gotten it was crazy that she just called me up and asked me to do it and i said yes and that was the process wow and uh, that's not how most scripts get written these days yeah yeah but a related slightly related question uh, this you know it comes up often where you have movies you have a big movie that comes out and then there's another movie that ju just like it that happens to hit at the same time and here of course it's hard to talk about ants and not talk about a bug's life. How does that hit you as the writer of these? <laughs> Did you even notice or care? Well, we certain DreamWorks certainly knew that that a bug's life was coming out. And uh, in fact, I, I felt bad because uh, their movie, Pixar's movie, was originally just called Bugs. 
And, uh, and when, and we, and everyone at DreamWorks knew it was coming out. And when they asked me to write this movie about ants, I just, so that I could identify the project I was working on in my own files, I just called it ants with an S and that's the title that stuck. And somewhere in the marketing process, they said, let's change it to a Z and, uh, I feel bad that, that uh, Pixar had to change the name of their movie, but they, they had to change it because of just of just my little placeholder title of ants wow isn't that funny but I, I feel like the movies are very different but i will say that reason that i think the reason that they both came out at the same time is because the way that computer animation had developed up till then you know toys that's a perfect example of something that will look good computer animated because mm-hmm. there's limited movement and uh, and everything is very stiff and that all works. Lots uh, of straight lines. Lots of straight lines, lots of solid objects that bump into each other. And if you see early Pixar movies like Tin Toy, you'll see uh, the, the the weird monstrous robotic baby that has its oh yeah, uh, yeah. that has its diaper that's like made out of concrete or something. It doesn't <laughs> have any softness to it at all. Um, and so it, it seemed to me that, well, the next obvious thing is insects. You would make a movie about insects and right, uh, something with an exoskeleton, right? Yeah, that makes sense. It's also hard and stiff and, uh, and doesn't, but you know, the, the, uh, the answer is, is in the Guinness Book of World's Records as the first, uh, movie to have computer generated water. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So that was a, that was a program that the people at, uh, the animation company, that was another weird thing was, uh, was, uh, I, I had been working in an office at DreamWorks for months, writing treatment after treatment after treatment for this movie that didn't have a title or a story or anything else. And, uh, and then one day I pick up variety in the lobby and the headline is that DreamWorks has spent $40 million on an animation company to make the movie that I've been sitting in the office writing writing treatments for and i'm like whoa okay and then <laughs> wow the next i'm getting in david geffen's private jet to fly to palo alto to meet the people who are making the movie that i'm writing and it was all very it was all very strange for me i was a i was a, an experimental playwright in new york at the time so it was all very weird for me too and that's a i mean that's a whole other story if you ever want to talk about ants yeah. for an hour <laughs> no <laughs> kidding but, but yeah it was it was, it was uh it was quite an experience uh one that i'm off, awfully glad to have had absolutely no that's great before we uh jump into bambi because I, I mean that's why we're here uh yeah. I, I do just want to check uh, i wanted to find out because i do see also that you have a credit as the mailroom screamer in the hudsucker proxy the hudsucker proxy yes Um, (laughs) a long, a long time ago uh, in New York, I was best known as a performance artist. This is in the early nineties. Uh, I did these monologue pieces, uh, where I would get up on stage and act crazy for a few minutes. The Coen brothers found out about that somehow through, through their, well, not somehow through their casting agent, Donna Isaacson. And she brought me in to read. Are you familiar with Hudsucker? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh Yes. So I was up for the part of the elevator boy, the elevator gnat, Buzz. Sure. I came in and uh, I auditioned for them and I just, I amped everything up to 11. 
and I did the thing as fast as I could, and I put in as many inflections as I could, and I, I made it as big and as comical as I could. This was all at the casting director's uh, uh, direction. I'm pleased to say that I I actually made Ethan Cohen fall over laughing. Hey. That was a that was another big day for me. That he was actually he was literally he was clutching his sides and falling over. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, and uh, I was like, well, that went well. I don't think I'll get it, and I didn't get it. But uh, but they they liked me enough that they gave me a one line part and flew me to Wilmington to be in the movie. And I, I was there with um, Richard Schiff, who uh, sure. uh, become a beloved character actor. He was another one of the screamers. Uh, it was an incredible set. That mailroom set was absolutely amazing. It was, it was like a hundred yards long in, in the uh, on the floor of this abandoned car floor mat factory in Wilmington, and uh, <laughs> and I walked in, and oh man, the, the, you wouldn't believe it. Like the pillars on the set that were supposed to be in the basement of a of a skyscraper, and uh, the pillars looked exactly like cement that had been painted and repainted and and dried out and become moist and dried out again so that the paint was like it was like wrinkled and 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 sagging in places and i was like oh my god these these cement pillars look so great and i touched one and i realized that well of course it's plywood yeah and it, but, but but you had to actually touch it to realize that <laughs> it, it wasn't it wasn't damp cement and when you look up and you realize oh it ends 20 feet in the air right, right not right. under a ceiling <laughs> <laughs> the sets on that thing are just amazing and they they had to come and get me a couple of times because i wandered off to look at the other sets there was this elevator set they had this the, this incredible cherry wood uh, uh finish to it and there were these 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 gleaming brass fixtures and i was like wow that brass looks incredible it too was painted plywood. I, I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Uh, anyway, the art of the production that's design. That's, yeah, yeah. That's, and I believe that's Dennis Gassner. I could be wrong, but incredible production designer. And I worked with him on a on a Wonder Woman project that didn't happen, but uh, uh, incredible talent. Well, just I mean, that's so much fun to just be involved in projects like that with people who are. Uh, just so incredibly creative, you know, it just kind of pours off the screen of all of their projects. I mean, I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan anyway. So, but yeah, it's, uh, it's always nice to remember, oh yeah, I'm actually in one of their movies. And, and one of my favorite ones. Oh my goodness. I love Hudsucker so much. Hey, yeah, that's great. Six degrees. And I'm also in six degrees of separation, oddly enough. Oh, hey, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> I have one <laughs> literally, line. literally yeah. six degrees. Yeah, I don't have a line in six degrees of separation. I had a line, and they changed the blocking at the last minute and gave it to somebody else. Ah. Uh, so, so the the back of my head is in six degrees of separation. <laughs> hey, I'll take it. But it's there. But, but it's, it's there. there. <laughs> well, speaking of just like incredibly creative people and talented people, let's talk about this film that uh, Walt Disney put together, uh, Bambi. Yeah, from nineteen forty two. Love is a song that never ends Life may be swift and fleeting Yeah, let's start a little bit about just like, you know, first time seeing it and and getting a sense of, uh, you know, where you were as a, I'm assuming, as a child seeing it for the first time and, and how you kind of were introduced to this story. Well, it's crazy because... 
I can I can literally mark the stages of my development based on viewings of Bambi. Um, and they say that seven is the age of reason. And uh, I, I'm sure I had been to movies before. I, I'm sure that I had seen uh, Snow White. Uh, back then, Disney released their movies every seven years because there was literally a new audience every seven years. Uh, people who were not born before, for them, it's like a, a, a new movie. I certainly don't remember going to see Bambi and thinking, oh, this looks decades old. <laughs> It was just a movie to me. Uh, and, you know, it's absolutely gorgeous to look at. I was just watching it again this morning and that opening sequence with the forest and everything and the multiplane camera and all of that stuff is just so gorgeously rendered. And it's, it's impossible to, you know, when you think of how they would do that kind of sequence today, I can't see how it would be more atmospheric and more evocative of this kind of primeval forest. But in any case... Uh, so I was seven years old and I think I, my parents were not there. I had an, I had older siblings, so we would, they would kind of send us to the movies all at once. I had heard that Bambi's mother died, but I didn't know what that meant or anything like that. And that part of the movie didn't bother me so much. It was, it was traumatic, of course, because it's meant to be, and it's, it's hugely effective. It's still very effective. And even better is the, uh, is the, is the pheasants who are hiding from the, from the hunter. And there's the one who's panicking. No, I can't take it anymore. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. But what I remember at seven was at the end of the movie, the new fawns are born and the camera tilts up to look and there's Bambi and his father standing on the bluff where we saw his father at the beginning of the movie. And now Bambi's there. And his father is there with him, and his father slowly turns and walks away. And I had no idea. I'm seven. I have no idea what that means, but I knew that, that I had seen something incredibly profound. And I remember being so disturbed by it and uh, uh, taking a shower after the movie, uh, after I got home. And I remember sitting uh, curled up in a ball, crouching on the floor of the bathroom, looking at the tile, thinking, wow, what was that? What yeah. happened? What was, what was that movie about? I don't understand. And then uh, it came out seven years later and I went to see it again. This is all before home video, of course. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you couldn't watch a movie anytime you wanted. You had to go see it in a theater. I, I enjoyed it at 14, and then uh, I saw it again at 21, and I was like, yeah, this is, this, is, this is nice. It's really well done. Didn't particularly affect me. And then in 19, I think it was 88, whatever year Scrooged came out, uh, it, it uh, was released again. Yeah, 88. And uh, it was christmas day or christmas eve or something and i was working i was a, i managed movie theaters in new york and so i got to see uh, all my movies for free so uh i spent my day going to see movies and there was a twin th theater that was showing scrooged and a re-release of bambi and i watched scrooged which is also has a has a uh a, uh a, a very emotional ending uh, and, uh, and so raw from my first viewing of Scrooge, I went into the next theater to watch Bambi and the, the credits started and I was like, Oh, I'm checking in with an old friend. Ah, let's see how Bambi 
this year. Yeah. And, uh, and there's all of the animals and, uh, and they're all excited about something and they're all going to, Oh, the, the new prince has been born. And I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. Everyone's excited about this new prince. Let's go see what the new prince is doing. And, and, uh, and everyone rushes and there's, and there's Bambi and he's just a little baby and he's just been born and he looks up and everyone's staring at him and everyone was waiting for him to do something. <laughs> and, and I was alone in the theater. It was Christmas Eve. No one was going to see Bambi. And, uh, and I remember I was, it was like I had just been electrocuted. I just, I went, Oh my God, this movie isn't about a deer at all. <laughs> 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 and it had never occurred to me that, that, uh, that, and, and suddenly I realized this, this, this movie is about me. <laughs> um and 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 it's like you're born and everyone's looking at you and you're supposed to do something and it's terrifying and uh, and the owl uh you know thumper is there making fun of him oh he's he's pretty wobbly isn't he right like well geez he was just born and there's people already criticizing his game <laughs> Oh my god, yeah. for sure. And and so like subversive. Watching it as a kid, you could totally see, oh, he's Thumper is so cute. Watching it as an adult, Thumper's kind of a dick. <laughs> so, <laughs> really? You want to just say Thumper, hold your own. Like get it move along, yeah. man. And it's funny because uh, you know, everyone makes fun of Bambi. Feline makes fun of Bambi. Um uh Flower does not. Flower no, is Flower so does not, hard. right. And, yeah. and I was watching it again this morning and I was, and I was looking at Thumper and I'm like, you know, it's funny. He's not gay. Flower isn't gay, but he is effeminate and he likes flowers. Why does he like flowers? Because Bambi put that into his head that it's okay yeah. for a boy to like flowers. And I just loved that, 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 uh, that flower is like, I'm I'm perfectly happy. I'm going to like flowers, and then I'm going to grow up, and I'm going to I'm going to mate with a girl skunk, and that that'll be who I am. And I'm flower the skunk, and I'm okay with that. I like I like who I am. Anyway, I was I was I'm, I'm always very charmed by Flower and his uh, and his how he's kind of a outlier in this weird. Uh, forest dichotomy where mothers are attentive and fathers are complete absentee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally absentee gone. father. And and I think that that that's the other piece that really feels so subversive and progressive about this movie. That here we are, largely you know this team of largely men making this movie that deals so deeply with identity and these values of relationships that we hold so core to our own being and yet it's taken decades to be able to talk about these things more publicly and here was bambi in the 40s that was already trying to to poke at some of these ideological like issues of ideological restraint i think it's fascinating no oh, it's it's fascinating and 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 so uh while i was working on ants uh uh jeffrey katzenberg who was running the studio at the time you know he worked at disney and made the little mermaid and the lion king and beauty and the beast and that whole block of the disney renaissance and he said i've seen walt's boards for snow white and uh and uh it's uh, it's 10 beats in the first act 10 beats in the second act 
four beats in the third act. Uh, and so that's, that's how I'm going to make movies. And if you, and, and certainly the Lion King follows that. It's got this, Lion King has this 50 minute first act, a 50 minute first act, uh, which, I mean, <laughs> it doesn't happen anymore. Um, uh, and then it has like a 10 minute second act and then like a 10 minute third act. So as again, has this very long first act, everything up until Bambi's mother's death. Then it has this very brief second act, maybe. And then the third <laughs> act, like the, the fire, it just, it all kinds of, it all kinds of flows like a river. And there's only the one demarcated act break where Bambi's mother is dead and Bambi has to go wander in the woods with his father in, in the wintertime. Which is never illuminated for us, right? That is an interesting thing. It's just sort of a block out of his life is gone. And apparently, apparently the Disney company made a sequel, uh, that, that does, that tells us what happened in those months with his father. Uh, I don't want to see that, but, uh, no. oh, but yeah. to me, the Bambi is a movie that's literally about the mystery of life. What is life and, and, uh, and what are we doing here? And what's the point of any of this? So, so I, I, I so I'm, I'm, uh, I'm working on ants and, uh, and so I'm like, okay, well, I, I too will go back and study the old Walt Disney movies. And Bambi was at the top of my list. You folks, I don't know how many screenwriters you talk to, but there is this hard and fast rule in Hollywood screenwriting. What does the protagonist want? That is the entire movie. What does the protagonist want? What is he after? What stands in his way? Who is who is arrayed against him? And that is all a cinematic narrative is. The, the, the protagonist is in pursuit of a goal. Something is in his way. He has to overcome it. Uh, and he does or he doesn't. Uh, whatever the case may be. And I'm watching Bambi and I'm like, there's nothing in there. There's absolutely <laughs> nothing. The, the protagonist, he just, he doesn't want to look like an idiot. That's about it. <laughs> He's, and, and it doesn't matter what he does. Everything makes him look like an idiot. Anything that he tries, it's like, I'm, oh, bunnies, I'm going to hop like a bunny. And then he falls on a log and everyone laughs at him because he, because he, an idiot uh he and then <laughs> and the thing with the ice again thumper is like come on out onto the ice i know yeah, thumper's right. the worst <laughs> <Thumper>. <laughs> so bambi it's all about there's this child and he's always a child he never grows up who is constantly trying to figure out well how do i do this what is life what am i supposed to be doing and every single time, it doesn't matter how small the beat is, every single time he thinks, ah, I know what I'm supposed to do now. He does that thing, and then life changes the stakes. Uh, my favorite example is, uh, uh, so it's springtime, and uh, everyone is Twitter-pated. Flower goes off with the girl skunk, and Thumper goes off with the girl rabbit, and Bambi stumbles upon Feline, and suddenly they're romping through clouds and there's this wonderful like minute long sequence of them hopping through the clouds. And then suddenly here comes this stag, this rival stag who is like, aha, you found love. Now I have to fight you. It's like, right. what? I didn't ask for this. What are you talking about? <laughs> and now he's got to fight this guy. 
and then and then the next thing you know, the freaking forest is on fire again. It's like what? This Bambi never catches a break, and I realized that there is this entire pageant of life that he that we watch him go through in seventy minutes with no plot whatsoever. It's just little scenes of uh, of uh, the the life in this creature, and he never learns. You know, Disney has quoted as saying, the the reason my movies are successful is because everyone in the world is or has once been a child. And that is the subject of Bambi, because I I mean, I, I don't know how other kids were, but that's certainly how I felt. It was always like, all right, well, I'm just getting used to this thing where I can feed and dress myself. Okay, wait, I have to go to school now? What? <laughs> and then you get to school and there's all these other people there and there's all these rules and you're supposed to do things and you're supposed to know about things. And uh, and it just, it never stops. Well, yeah, and I think that's what's really interesting about this because those transitions through our lives don't get easier. They just get different. Right. They just transitioning to high school, transitioning to college, whatever, transitioning to adolescence, transitioning to Twitter patient. They they're just different. They're not any objectively not easier. And so like looking at how Bambi in right 1942 interprets those changes is a really interesting sort of reflection on the you know largely men constructing this universe this like fantastical universe of woodland creatures that has the same cultural hierarchies that we're still largely dealing with sure yeah absolutely but the idea that you know at the end of the movie now bambi is the prince of the forest but we've we've seen his entire experience and it's like well what qualified his father <laughs> yeah, right. I know. Right. The, 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 the thing he managed to live the longest. He managed to live the longest. <laughs> Bambi's mother says because no other deer has lived half so long as him. So what does that mean? That means that when he walks into the meadow, everyone watches him to see if he's going to panic. Yeah, because when he panics, that's the cue for everybody to panic. Right. Um, and that's it. That's what he does. He has lived the longest because uh, he, you know, he. they say he has wisdom, but wisdom is just a, it's an elevated form of pattern recognition. Oh, the birds, the birds are doing that. I have to watch yeah. out. Right, right, right. And uh, so the deer who is best at recognizing those patterns of danger is the one who becomes the protector of the herd. But the fact that like the stag's, have absolutely nothing to do with their children (laughs) with their mates the mates don't even they like the father stops and says hi to bambi doesn't even say hi to his mother (laughs) just just walks away walks Um, away but i love how at the end of the movie uh first of all flower comes along and he he turns off screen and says come along bambi and he's talking to his own son so flowers mm-hmm. there with his son and then thumper is also there with his nine children or however many he has so uh so not all of the patterns completely remain you know thumper's dad was absent as well he apparently was there for you know breakfast to say don't do this do that instead right uh, but what he's doing all day, I have no idea. 
But uh, but yeah, I was completely blown away when I sat down as a screenwriter to go through the script beat by beat. Okay, what is the protagonist doing here? He's doing this. How how does the world react? It makes fun of him. He screws up again. The the he he masters this one. He masters walking, and they give him ice. You know he uh, he 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 masters the word bird, and then a then then they, everyone laughs at him because he calls a butterfly a bird. And then he, and then he figures out. Okay, so that's a butterfly. Oh, look, there's other butterflies. No, those are flowers. Oh, jeez, everything. <laughs> But you know what's so interesting about that, Todd, though? I Like, I watch it, and I think part of the reason Bambi doesn't make me walk, like, finish watching it and feel absolutely desolate, like, absolutely uh, inconsolable, right. is because Bambi never really wavers in the face of ridicule, right? Like... He doesn't Bambi. No, yeah. He, he doesn't give up. Like it's it's he masters bird and they're giving him other stuff and they're making fun of him and they're laughing, but he doesn't seem ever really shook by it, right? That when we first see him shook and then he sort of like we miss the grieving process is we made it, Mama. We made it, Mama, and and Mama didn't make it, and that is a, a terrible thing. And then they mask all of the grief and he comes back with horns, like. Most of the reason I think Bambi works and works as kind of a role model for kids is he's sort of unflappable. Sure. But, 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 you know, it's funny when you think of that kind of, uh, protagonist in a kid's movie, it's always the, you know, the, the cocksure go getter guy who, who's like, nope, that doesn't bother me. Um, and Bambi is, is just, he's so much more passive. That's the thing that's really shocking about the screenplay is that he's not in pursuit of anything. If anything, he's like, he's trying to avoid everything. <laughs> and, and it's, uh, you mentioned how, uh, um, life continues to be surprising. As I get older, I'm beginning to look at people. There's people even older than me. Uh, and I, and I begin to look at them and go and, and think, Oh, all of those things that I think of as old people behavior, and I'm using my little fingers with air quotes here, to those people, that stuff is brand new, too. It's like, oh, I just figured out what I'm going to do for retirement, and now I have a disease, you know? Uh, so it just, it never stops. This this process of, uh, of uh, will I, you know, the people, I, you always like to joke about how, uh, what, I'm, what do I want to do when I grow up? And it's like, well, it never really happens. You never really grow up. And I feel like, especially in the time that uh, Bambi was made, I mean, it was, it, uh, it, it came out during World War II, but I, it, World War II hadn't happened while they were making it. Adulthood in that time was also this mysterious thing where you were, you were a child. And childhood was a very different thing back then. You had children who were still working in factories. And the next thing you know, suddenly they're in war and they're going off to war. And then they come back from World War II and nobody talks about anything. You know, that's that's the greatest generation, right? That you 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 go to war as a teenager and then you come back. And, and now you're a man and no one knows what any of that means. And the, and the decision made is that we will never speak of this again. Here is trauma 
and here's how we live through trauma is we don't speak of it. It's a, yeah, it's an interesting like the exploration of that type of story. Like it fits really well. Like you can see why it wasn't just a story about a family or something like that. But putting it in the natural world, and we have these animals, and we get to kind of experience this story with them as they're kind of living just the the life of animals in the forest. I mean, it makes sense that it it fits in that world. And and for us watching it, we can go, okay, I can watch this story about this passive animal and these animals in the forest because that's where they are. It's very difficult to see how you can translate that same story into, I mean, as you're saying, in the world of screenwriting, like, how do you translate that into a story of people? It's very difficult. Although I guess you could say, well, if you put it into something, you know, all quiet on the Western Front sort of thing or a war story, yeah, it's like, then, okay, I can see how you can see, like, these are these young people who have a vision of what life is and a vision of what war is, and then they're in it, and things are always different, and nothing's ever the same, and, and you never know, like, the rules are constantly changing. And so, I mean, it's a totally different type of story, but it seems like it would be very difficult to tell a story like Bambi in a world of people. And that's, I think, kind of an interesting element of it. Exactly. Well, and, and, and the fact that the animation is so disarming and that, uh, and that you never stop being interested in what Bambi is doing or what any of the animals are doing. Um, and I don't know why it works, but I've, I've, I don't know anyone who says, Oh, I tried watching Bambi. It was boring. I, I don't know who could watch it and not at any point think, oh, my God, that's what my childhood was like. Like, it it, it, it has to be this kind of universal um, thing. The, the, the only modern movie you were talking about, All Quiet on the Western Front, and uh, I remember thinking a similar thing about Forrest Gump, that uh, here's this movie two and a half, three hours long. I can't remember. Um, and apart from the love story with Jenny, Forrest doesn't want anything either. He just, he does things and things happen to him. And because of who he is, uh, he, he gets through somehow and continues to flourish. Even things like that were happening at the time, Italian neorealism, like has more plot than Bambi. It's crazy. It's crazy that that was that this and, and I mean, and a, a, as we were talking about earlier, uh, the movie didn't do well when it first came out. I, I, I don't know why. I don't think it was the plot, but or its lack of plot. But um, talk about a movie that uh, benefited from aging and from and from a company being able to re-release it and re-release it until everyone who wanted to see it could see it. Well, there's a benefit of the fact that so many of those early films, especially the ones where Walt really had a hand in, uh, like you can just get a sense of that timeless quality that he was really striving for with them. Because, I mean, this film doesn't feel like any particular time. I mean, it could like these deer could be out in the forest right now. It just feels like such a such a story that has no specific time at all. I think that's a really good point, Andy, but I also wonder, like, what are the constraints that would make this movie impossible to make now, particularly from the position of a screenwriter? Like, like this movie stops and luxuriates in its color and light. It doesn't just mask grief and absentee parents. It it really, it's an it's an opera of color, and the, the score is incredible. But 
it's also not very long. So what is it? An hour 14, something like that? 70 minutes. 70 minutes. So like, could, would it be possible to make a timeless movie like this from, from where you sit, Todd? Not at the Disney studio. I mean, that's the crazy thing is, uh, I, I, um, wrote a little sketch once where Walt Disney is unfrozen and goes to the studio bearing his name and pitches a movie of the kind that he would make. And, and the, 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 the executives are like, well, I don't understand. Who, who is that guy? Yeah. <laughs> wait a minute. So wait, so the deer, is there, is there like an evil deer who's like the yeah. first <laughs> and the evil deer wants to take over the world because the stakes have to be super high or else we're not going to make any money on this thing. No, 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 no. It's just, there's a deer and it's about him trying to make his way through life. And, and he, and he meets a girl and suddenly everything <laughs> is different. And it's just about, it's just about life and the way that people experiences these inner, no, it's like, no. No, you know, right. uh, and uh, and also you have to remember, uh, it's not just it's not just Disney. Everything. There was this whole period in the 90s where animated movies for children just became super antic and just stuff full of plot. Uh, and the, we remember the ones that were that were good, like Toy Story. Uh, but there were so many others that were that it was it was just like. We're going to have people making faces and it's going to be action all over the place. And, uh, and just this sense of you can't bore the kids. You can't bore the kids. And it's like the, the fact that Bambi is, is so quiet and so gentle and you'll find moments, just tiny little things like, you know, the, the mouse at the beginning of the movie, the, he, he's waking up and, uh, he, he pulls a drop of dew off of a blade of grass and he rubs it on his face and that's how he washes his face. And, and the movie is filled with little gags like that. And it's just, it's even things like, so Bambi, uh, trips and falls and then he's splayed out on the ground and his tail flips up and thump, thumper's head comes Thumper. out of his tail. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and things like, um, flower, you know, the, the girl skunk kisses him and, uh, I, I, he, he, uh, he becomes erect <laughs> for, for lack of a better word. I, I, I was searching for he, one that I couldn't, <laughs> he flips end over end. And then he, and then he does this little thing where he, he parts his tail and looks out through the bush, the bush of his tail. And let's not forget that fantastic shrug. He gives Thumper and Bambi as they're walking away. Oh, like that's oh, <laughs> my favorite flower moment in the whole thing. I'm like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> and uh, those moments aren't part of the screenplay that was another team of guys and their entire existence at the studio was just coming up with those physical gags uh so and and uh and i remember going to see snow white it, i guess it would have been a few years earlier i was very young and the one moment i remember is there's the dance sequence at the dwarf's house and, and Grumpy's playing the organ and he does this little run up the keyboard and the camera pans over all the little stops on the organ pipes going. And then the last one, the last stop opens and another little pipe comes out and there's a little bird nest on it and a little bird pops out of the nest and goes, <laughs> beep! Right. And as a five-year-old, a three-year-old, I can't even remember how old I was. I just, I just went, Oh my God, someone had to think of that. You know, someone had to think of it. And then someone had to go through this incredibly time-consuming, elaborate process of animating it. And it goes by like that. And yet it's, it's magic. Uh, Bambi is full of moments like that that are endemic to the studio. 
And it's what Disney was kind of known for was those little character moments. But the, the underlying story of Bambi is so gentle and so, ah, God, you know, it's, it's, it's mind boggling to me to have, uh, to see a movie with a, with a protagonist that, that doesn't want anything. The closest thing that I can think of in recent times would be something like, you know, Hayao Miyazaki's My Neighbor Totoro or something or, along that line. Like that's yeah, kind of like kind of a vibe. Yeah, it's it's really kind of about just the the sense of place, the sense of space as far as those two kids and their their summer with mom in the hospital. And um it, it's hard for them, I think, to allow for that. And it's funny because I think the less the screenwriters, more probably the studio heads are the ones saying, oh, the kids need action. They need all these beats. They need these these punchlines and these jokes and this constant energy. And the pop culture references. Yeah, the pop culture references, absolutely. Without realizing that the kids also really revel in all those little details and those fine moments that are just just sitting there and and those sorts of things that they can absorb and think about and process. And like uh, like you talked about the little mouse washing his face with the, the, the drop of dew, like that's something that I've always remembered. It has always been in my head mm-hmm. from this film. And it's like, because probably I had time as a kid to like think about that and process that and really kind of absorb. Is that how a mouse would really like wash its face? And like you're thinking about that sort of thing. And like that's what's so great about it. And you just don't get that space in the stories now. Well, you know, and uh, and there's the uh, the the April showers uh, sequence that stops the narrative cold. And it's just about things that look cool in the rain. And uh, and there's this there's the uh, the the Bellinate sequence where uh, 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 Bambi and Feline get together, and there's just these shots of the wind passing over the grass, and right. yeah. there's moments like that that strike me as uh, uh, that that's what Disney was really about was giving the audience um, presenting them with a world that they would recognize that's right outside their window that they had, that they'd never noticed before. And I, I, I go back to uh, when uh, lady and the tramp first came out on Blu-ray and I was able to watch it on home video in a decent uh, presentation. And I just, first of all, the movie's beautifully animated, but mostly you watch lady and the tramp and it's like, Oh my God. It's like, I've never seen a dog before. (laughs) And and you're watching lady and the tramp. It's like, that's exactly what a dog is like. Oh my God. I love dogs. Dogs are fantastic. And you can see that the animators are thinking the same thing. The animators are like, I can't wait to show you these dogs. And right, uh, right, you watch right. that, you know, I was watching Bambi this morning and I was like, wait a minute. So wait, so this is Bambi's shoulder. And then he's got this little yes. upper arm and then he's got this incredibly long forearm and then he's got this wrist and then his, and then his fingers are the whole bottom section of his, I'm like, Oh my God, they, they sat and they watched deer and deer are weird. I mean, the way that they walk. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of weird. Uh, but the, the, the other shot that I remember uh, is um, the mother walking out into the meadow to check to make sure everything's okay before Bambi comes out. And there's a shot where she puts her head up and her ears turn out and you, and it gives you the sense of alertness and this, then the light and the fog and the color, it all gives, it all gives this overwhelming sense of tranquility, but with danger, there's always something waiting. And, uh, I, I was thinking again today about 
uh, Bambi uh, goes through the grass and uh, and uh, almost steps on a frog, and the frog says, "Watch out!" Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and I was just like, I was like, now who thought of that? Who thought? Well, what does the frog? The frog should say something. What should the frog say? The frog says, "Watch out!" What? Why is, is he saying, "Watch out!" You almost stepped on me, or is he saying, just in general, you know, watch out? Yeah, watch yeah, out. watch out. Right, life right. is hard. Danger yeah. is yeah. always afoot. And and then exactly. immediately after there, afterwards, he he meets Feline, who is a whole other kind of bucket of trouble uh, for Bambi because he has no idea what Feline wants. She and you know it's like everyone seems so much more up to speed than Bambi is. Like Feline can't be older than him, but she's got so much more on the ball. And, right, exactly, uh, exactly. And uh, she knows how to tease him. She knows how to wind him up. She knows how to how to how to dig at him. And let's not forget to Twitter paid him. Exactly. Yeah, right. Well, it's, it's definitely like a. I, I feel like it's a Disney trope of the of the female characters who are so much more uh, interested in relationships than the male characters are, because we certainly get that here as, as these three, these three, uh, you know, young men are introduced to women for the first time. And they're all like, hell no, that's never happening to me (laughs) (laughs) until it happens. So I especially like that, that yes, Thumper, who is a rabbit after all, Right. <laughs> has never shown the slightest interest in mating. Exactly. It's very uh, funny. But, but yes, the, and and it's not just that uh, the it's not just that they're more interested in relationships. They're interested in sex. The uh, the uh, the the rabbit brushing brushing her ear like a mermaid sitting on a rock, mm-hmm. and uh, she's got a little blush on her cheeks, and she's doing she's doing this kind of Veronica Lake thing, looking through her uh, looking through her fur. Uh, they're all very seductive and oh, uh, yes. and and way ahead of the game, and and the men are just putty in their hands. Oh, I, I there's nothing I can do about it. <laughs> I know, I know, so funny, so funny. Andy, you know what they say about Bambi. They say, <laughs> you think you saw Bandy. Bambi. Wait till you see Bambi 2. It may come across as a joke, but it is a sad reality <laughs> that there is Bambi 2 out there in the world. Uh, this was that era when Disney decided to just, you know what? Hey, let's just really dig into this sequel nonsense. Hardcore. And uh, yeah, 2006, they actually put together... Bambi 2, uh, direct-to-video, and as Todd said, it is a period in the point when Bambi's mother has been shot, and it is about the great prince of the forest, as it says, struggling to raise the motherless Bambi, and Bambi's doubts about his father's love. Oh my goodness. Just what the world needed. And as if that wasn't enough, in 2020, they actually had announced that they were going to do a photorealistic CGI remake of Bambi. Uh, Paul Weitz and Chris Weitz, uh, interestingly, both people who uh, Todd has worked with, or I don't know, worked (laughs) with, but certainly all ended up kind of getting credited on Ants as writers. Uh, They are on as producers for this. Now, it was in 2020 when they announced it with COVID and everything else that happened very shortly after that announcement. Nothing else has been said about that, so it's entirely possible that it's been dropped. Fingers crossed, that's the case. Boy, 
Bambi's mother gets shot in photo reel. That's going to be great. Oh, geez. No I can, there's so many kids who are going to love that. <laughs> but, you know, just to be fair to the Disney company, uh, you know, Felix Sultan, who wrote the original book, Bambi, A Life in the Woods, uh, the German or the Austrian book, actually also wrote a sequel in uh, it would have been about 16 years after the publication of the original book, and it was called Bambi's Children and actually is about Bambi's kids growing up. So, you know, Disney's not the only one who was taking advantage of the popularity of the story. I can't wait for Bambi 3, Deer in the City. You can see it now, can't you? Uh, now, this was uh, 1942, and I think the uh, Oscars, the first Oscars uh, were 1929. I, I'm pretty sure that's accurate. So by this point, were there enough good animated uh, awards categories for something like Bambi to actually do well in the awards season? Yes, surprisingly. Uh, but it's one of those things where, you know, the Oscars, they didn't have as many categories as they do now. No best animated feature, things like that. But Bambi did get recognized. Nominated for three categories, Best Scoring of a Dramatic or Comedy Picture by Frank Churchill and Edward H. Plum, but lost to the film Now Voyager. Hey. The music by Max Steiner, which we've talked about on the next reel. We've talked about. Yeah. Uh, Love is a Song, music by Frank Churchill, lyrics by Larry Morey, was nominated for Best Original Song, but lost to White Christmas from Holiday Inn, of course, by Irving Berlin. That's a hard one to argue. White Christmas, you know, it... (laughs) I think it's fair to say it's pretty much a perennial classic. Yeah. And uh, Best Sound Recording, C.O. Slyfield was nominated but lost to Yankee Doodle Dandy uh, to Nathan Levinson for that film. Yankee Doodle Dandy. Any other categories? In Interestingly, 1948, now this film was 1942, as you said, the Golden Globes, however, gave Walt Disney a special achievement award for furthering the influence of the screen for releasing a Hindustani version of the movie, which I think is interesting. It's like recognizing, hey, you know, this idea of other languages, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> Good old Golden Globes. <laughs> they really, they're catching up with the time. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, at the Hugo Awards, they weren't around at the time, but they started doing something a few years ago called the Retro Hugos, and they release awards, uh, two films that are celebrating their, I think their 25th, 50th, or 75th anniversaries, or they're looking at years, those years. And so in the 75th anniversary categories in 2018, they awarded Bambi the best dramatic presentation in short form, um, a win for the film. Wow. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of interesting. All right. And then just two other um, points of note. AFI, you know, they're always releasing their top 10s or top 100s and their 100 years, 100 heroes and villains. They had Man from Bambi as the number 20 spot for the villains. And their top 10 for animated films, Bambi got number three. Okay, so turning our attention to the budget, normally when we go back this far, there isn't as much detail as you would like, as would satisfy your inner budgeting need. Did you get anything good on this one? It's a tricky one. For Disney's fifth movie, uh, you know, he had been losing money on several of his prior films, so he did have to cut the budget on this one, excising 12 minutes of the story, actually, and hence the 70-minute runtime here. That left the film with $858,000 to produce, which is about $16.2 million in today's dollars. The movie opened August 22, 1942, opposite the Pied Piper and Talk of the Town, as well as Pride of the Yankees, which had opened earlier in the week. Because this was opened during World War II, it really struggled at the box office, 
office, only earning about $1.3 million domestically. It did better on its first re-release uh, in 1947, and it continued growing in popularity during its subsequent re-releases in 1957, 1966, 1975, 1982, and 1988. Throughout its series of releases, it ended up earning $168.2 million, or $267.4 million in today's dollars. That lands it with a handsome adjusted profit per finished minute of nearly $3.6 million. A slow start, but in the end, a great success. You know, it's, I, really, just just a, I, in terms of just a, a comment on on what uh, on how we treat kids, how we think of kids. Don't bore the kids. Don't bore the kids. I I sort of marvel at this movie where you know I've got my my son is like six, 17. It's going to be seventeen in a month, and he sits down and looks at this movie and is absolutely riveted. Now, maybe if he were watching it with a bunch of other guys and they were doing guy things, he might not say it out loud. Right. But I think kids of all ages whether they're, you know, 6, 16, or 50, they like cute. Like, it's okay to, to get lost in cute and adorable and beautiful and luxurious. It's okay to do that. And I think that's one of the things that I really celebrate. And this is a movie I did not watch very much. And I had to actually go back to my mother and say, what was my stance on Bambi? And she said <laughs> uh, that the fire scared the living daylights out of me. And I didn't watch it for like 10 years. Right. So uh, I did not grow up with this movie. I kind of turned it off. And by the time I you know, could have watched it again, I'd sort of moved on. So watching it again for this show is the first time I've watched it in many years. I, we didn't grow up with the, my kids in the house. We just, Bambi was not in the catalog. It's an extraordinary experience. Extraordinary. Yeah, experience. absolutely. I was, uh, I had a similar experience to you, Todd, where, uh, like, because I grew up with it as a kid, and then it was uh, probably my early 20s or so, I watched it again. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, it's it's a fine movie. And I didn't think about it again until I had kids. And then I was like, you know, I'm going to watch all I'm gonna, I went through the whole Disney chronology with my kids and watched all their films. And Bambi just hit me. And maybe it was because I had had kids at that point. But I just it really struck me how it, there is so much, as you said, it's really about life and just kind of this journey of just kind of this ever uh, constant process of of being introduced to new things and changing things and and adapting and i don't know it just really struck me with the the way that the story was presented so um really a magical film and the sense that that you never arrive anywhere it's always yeah. a process that, exactly uh, that uh, uh you you know do you do you, is it possible to acquire wisdom or is do you just get better at recognizing patterns you know yeah uh, like you said um, absolutely um, and uh, and the idea that uh, uh bambi is now in the position of his father and it's like well he went through all that and now he can't be with his kids either it's like it's like you know and 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 there you are and there and that's life and, and that's uh, life yeah and that's life uh and uh, and uh, uh you don't you don't learn anything it just it it all keeps changing and anyway exactly well i mean it has been a fantastic conversation about just a wonderful wonderful film thank you so much uh for bringing this film for us to discuss today we certainly had a wonderful conversation with you oh thank you so much i really appreciate it do you have a place out there online where you direct people as far as like what you're up to or, or kind of, you know, how you, where you want people to go? I have a blog that I update occasionally, uh, uh, Todd um, where I talk about, uh, movies and TV shows. 
I'm on Facebook for if if you want to see pictures of my cats and uh, and also um, I'm I'm working on a on a, a graphic novel a memoir that I I. I I've been posting on Facebook as well. Uh, I'm there as Todd Alcott, uh, anyone who wants to follow me. Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. And then I, I've got the uh, my Etsy store, uh, Todd Alcott Graphics, uh, where I sell my, um, uh, my graphic work. Well, uh, we certainly appreciate you being here and talking with us about this movie. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you to all of our wonderful listeners out there for tuning in. Uh, for all of you out there, we hope you like the show and certainly hope you like the movie like we do here on Movies We Like. The Next Reel Presents Movies We Like is a part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. The music is Chomp Clap by Out of Flux. Find the show at truestory.fm and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at The Next Reel. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, hey, we always appreciate it if you drop one in there for us. See you next time. Andy, according to my friend, Internet, this is what Letterboxd is. Letterboxd is a global social network for grassroots film discussion and discovery. Use it as a diary to record and share your opinion about films as you watch them, or just keep track of films you've seen in the past. Showcase your favorites on your profile page. That is a lot. You bet it is. That's why I want you to tell our fair listeners just one thing you do with Letterboxd that has changed the way you watch movies. Let them have it. Okay, are you ready for this? So ready. I love lists. As of today, I have 246 lists in my account. I use them to track the movies I watch, organize them in all sorts of different ways. I track them by hand. I clone lists from other people. I use them to plan what I'm going to be watching. All sorts of things. I just, I love creating lists. It's a fantastic tool. Sexiest animated characters. Andy, what is this? We love Letterboxd. And if you're a movie lover, we are sure you will too. And when you upgrade from the free account, you will remove ads and support the great Kiwi team building this amazing service. Just use the discount code NEXTREAL or visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox to get 20% off your pro or patron membership. And it works for renewals as well.